0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 23rd Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. on the journalism faculty at the university. And with us tonight is Krista Tippett, the founder and host of the NPR podcast On Being, which has won a Peabody Award. She's the 2014 recipient of the National Humanities Award from President Obama. She's written three books, uh, Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living, Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit, and Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It. She's now working on a very interesting project called the Civil Conversations Project. Uh, Krista Tippett, it is a privilege to have you with us tonight. Thank you. So I'm sure you're sick of stories like this, but I picked up your book, Becoming Wise, while I was just wandering through a bookstore in Denver called The Tattered Cover. I know you're very familiar with it. I just saw this book, picked it up, and I began reading it. And I just stood there as if my feet were nailed to the floor. I was actually mesmerized by just the first few pages of this book. Hmm. The questions you were raising in the first chapter were just so deep I, I almost felt like this is a a cool stream across some barren land that I didn't even know I needed. So I, w- I immediately bought it, read it on the plane on the way home, read it again, and decided the second time through our writer's symposium would not be legitimate if we didn't have you come <laughs> and uh, hang with us because... I, I, I really was so moved by this. So then, of course, I read your other books and um, listened to more of your podcasts, and I, I know I'm just gushing. But, <laughs> but, but I want to talk about the word wisdom. Hmm. You have a background in journalism, mm-hmm. which is about informing people. So you had to have thought about what's the difference between being well-informed and being wise, Let's start there. <laughs> is that a softball enough question for you those Get you are warmed true. up?
0: It's <laughs> kind of a hard question to start with. Though I don't uh, boy. Those two things don't necessarily have anything in common. They can.
1: But um, but but somebody who's well informed you say, "Oh, that's a really smart person." Yeah. They know where they know where is. So, Slovenia you know, is.
0: I finished that book uh, and I didn't understand this until I I was done. I realized I wrote a book about wisdom without... And it was a big, long reflection on wisdom and also reflecting on lives of wisdom, but I never defined wisdom. Um, And so, right, so when I was done, I I went and asked to define it, so here's where I came at. I mean, knowledge, which also is... can be something quite different from being well-informed... But you know, being intelligent, being knowledgeable, being well informed—these um, can also be qualities of a of a wise person. And these these are often connected qualities, I would say. But I think that the definition of wisdom is something that you that is measured by the imprint a life has on other lives.
1: Right. Keep going.
0: I think that's how we know. I think that's how we how we know wisdom, not by what it knows, but by but by how it lives and how it. Um, yeah, I want to use that word imprints. How it imprints other lives.
1: So, so what do you think of? I, uh,
0: and, and everybody doesn't grow wise. Some most people just grow old, right? Yeah, so it's also yeah, yeah. not ju- It's not necessarily a function of age. It can be. But there's also a wisdom that four-year-olds have, and there's a mm-hmm. wisdom that teenagers have, and you know, there's this wisdom that people in their early 20s have where they can see the world whole, and they have this urgency about making it real. So uh, that, too, is wisdom.
1: So I, I, I heard someone describing, you know, when, when people say we all use 10% of our brain, you know, and that's, that's really all you need for reading, writing, and arithmetic. And... Uh, Obeying traffic laws and stuff um, But really the, the rest of your brain Is actually this repository for wisdom What do you make of that?
0: Well, I, uh, yeah, that may be true I think also wisdom is embodied That's what I also want to say hmm. So it isn't course, just
1: something you think about It's something you do no,
0: it's a, Yeah, it's something you inhabit It's a way of being right. And it's not an end point either Right, It's a way of being, and it keeps moving through the world. And it's a way of questioning as well as a way of knowing.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about your time as a reporter in uh, Eastern Europe. You noticed something while... This was during the Cold War. Berlin was divided. And you noticed something um, about people on one side of the Berlin Wall, the most <laughs> oppressed the people who had the least um, also had a vibrancy to them and a, um, almost a joy in their, in their being oppressed. And, and what you also noticed, though, was that the people who wielded the most power uh, led the emptiest lives. You want to keep going with that?
0: Yeah. So, so at a young age through a combination of kind of being in the right place at the right time and, and being kind of scrappy and pushing myself out there. I, I landed in this, you know, just these interesting... I mean, you know, West Berlin at that point was kind of a small town. I mean, it was, it was basically an island in the Great Communist Sea. So it was a fault line of the world, but it was also this small landlocked place. And so I, I landed there as a stringer for the New York Times. I kind of set, me, set myself up as everybody's stringer because nobody had stringers there. And then I ended up working with, uh, with, our, with the State Department in my last years. And, so, and I kind of stumbled into actually working with and sitting around tables with these guys, and they were mostly guys, mm-hmm who were moving nuclear missiles around on a map of Europe. There were 6,000 nuclear warheads in West Germany at that point. Um, So I I had this proximity to genuine power. And it left me so confused inside for reasons I could not understand because it was thrilling and it was seductive. And it was going to look great on my resume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at the same time, as a journalist, and then, well, when I was with the State Department, I had to, I had to be more careful. But I, I knew people on the eastern side of the wall, and I loved people on the eastern side of the wall. And so I was having, it was this very strange juxtaposition of people who had everything And not just materially, but in terms of choice and, you know, the consequence of their actions. And seeing that you could have all of that and be really impoverished inside. And on the Eastern side, people who had nothing, and again, it wasn't just about materials. It was a poverty of choice. It was a poverty of being able to see the world. Um... And yet I saw, and I don't want to romanticize this, mm-hmm. because some people's lives were destroyed. You know, everybody didn't survive that. But I saw people who worked with whatever raw materials they had and created lives of great dignity and beauty and intimacy. And I saw that, that, that this political economic level, and even this high level of, you know, policy and arms race, that there was a, there was a level of the, of the human experience and in fact of of how we make meaning and make worth of the lives we lead which that level of things couldn't didn't really address wasn't actually that curious about or quick to be curious about and didn't touch and so it was that questioning in in me like what is it then where do, how do you, what touches that
1: hmm.
0: um, that led me to s- step out of that that high level policy world
1: you did actually more than step out of it. I mean, you were kind of burned out. And so you leave that world, burned out, and you have this great line in one of your books, quiet and submission, born out of fatigue, were the beginnings of wisdom for me after Berlin.
0: I just had this experience people have with me. I was like, really, I wrote that?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's a good line.
1: Yeah, just own it. (laughs) But, but so, that yes. wasn't a question. My okay. question is this. Okay. So, quiet and submission are the exact opposites of what we celebrate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How can we make America great again by being quiet and submissive, Krista?
0: Mm-hmm. We can. Um, so, I think... One of the observations I started to make when I got away from that world was, is very much present to me in the world we inhabit now, which is what we did in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, how we understood power and success, what we value, what we admire, what we celebrate, um, it's all about external. It's about, it's about money and power and celebrity, right? We revere those things. We revere them on the right, we revere them on the left, we revere them in Hollywood, we revere them in Washington, D.C. Um, and we made, I mean, we culturally made inner life optional, right? Like if you get around to that. And big lives, big powerful lives rarely have gotten around to that. And we haven't rewarded the getting around to that with those things. And I think we are now bearing that full-blown, the fruits of living that way. And one reason I'm so excited about new generations is they don't want to live that way. And, and among the many things that are wrong with it, it's a lonely way to live,
1: which? The inner life or the... The
0: living without an inner life. Okay, The okay. investing in, the, in all these exterior things, um, which lead to the opposite of wisdom. Um, yeah, do quiet and submission... Well, they, they, you know, quiet and submission m- meant that I was so exhausted, and I was so exhausted by, um, by participating in that. And again, it was so exciting, and I don't regret it for a minute... Um, I learned so much. But it is sometimes when we get fully exhausted, when that exterior thing, uh, when it can't carry us forward anymore, Mm -hmm. that we have to look inside. And looking inside is part of being whole. And it is part of creating a worthy life in the fullness of that that phrase.
1: Creating a worthy life. That's good. So I, I remember reading... Uh, a, a book that was written back in the 70s, you may have read it. Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. So the opening line in his book is superficiality is the curse of our age. Mm-hmm. So that was written in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Probably we would all agree is, we're still living under that curse. Then you come along talking about wisdom and art and mystery and science and faith in these really refreshing ways, and you're getting some traction with this, aren't you?
0: Yeah, after 15 years, I am. <laughs> but, I mean, that's really interesting. And I think part of the answer, again, to quiet and submission is, um, y- you know, if you, you can be loud and get attention in a moment, but the, the quiet meaningful change, the human change that makes social transformation possible is a long-term project. And you, you can, you, it will matter in the long run if you stick with it, but you have to be patient. You have to have a long view.
1: So some of what we've been talking about actually mirrors your own story, as I understand it. So you grew up in Oklahoma, had this sort of fundamentalist uh, background where the... Um, The emphasis was on answers and on certainty. That's the ethos you grow up in. And then the older you get, the more of the world you see, the more of the inner life you're starting to realize you crave uh, to develop. You're actually moving away from valuing answers. And your whole program is just about asking really good questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I stopped valuing answers so much as I fell in love with great questions. And I fell in love with the asking of questions and how questions beget other questions. And, you know, it's true in in conversation. It's true in scientific discovery. I mean, one thing I love about scientists is, you know, the minute they discover something, they love all the new questions and unknown things that discovery gives birth to. That's actually how we move forward as a species on every level. It's how we move forward in our personal lives when we ask new questions and we live into them.
1: So you quote Rilke, you know, the, the living, the questions. Yeah. Uh, My Rumi, colleagues
0: make fun of me because I quote Rilke so much.
1: No, 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 no. You can't, you can't
0: <laughs> quote, quote Rilke him too much. much. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. But, we are kindred spirits. Yeah. So, so, yeah, the questions, I mean, it's true for an interview, but it's also true for a life. The good questions are where it's at. Would you yes, agree? Yes,
0: and I would say in our cultural, civilizational moment... We inhabit a moment of great, aching, open questions about our life together, challenges that there are no solutions for right in front of our faces, and a muscle, we, ha- we are going to have to learn to flex anew, you know, because it's very American, to like, leap to an answer, create a plan.
1: We're all about solutions. Right?
0: A long-term view would be six months, right? Right. <laughs> um, Yeah, can do, action-oriented. We have some great big intimate civilizational questions that we need to, first of all, just let rise up in our midst and hold them and dwell on them and find ways to dwell on them together. And by the way, where we find it so hard right now to get our answers together in a room... I think we could, getting our questions, shared questions together across our chasms is something we could start to do right away.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm also struck by how comfortable you are with the word mystery. I, why is that not just a cop-out to just say, oh, that's just a great mystery? That, that just, well, isn't that just sort of anti-intellectual to say that? no. Why?
0: <laughs> mystery is a common human experience, okay? Being born, falling in love, dying. You don't have to be a religious person to experience mystery in life. Again, scientists have the richest vocabulary of mystery of any discipline I know, more than theologians. I think mystery is you know if anything it's it's an act it's intellectual humility.
1: I like it. it <laughs> I like it. All right.
0: Einstein said
1: yeah, I've heard and of he him. He was
0: kind of a smart guy.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh he said that a reverence for mystery, you know, and, and, and an ability to wonder, to be in wonder, was at the heart of the best of science and religion and the arts. The fact that, again, in the 20th century, in respectable circles, we got really uncomfortable with the language of mystery says more about us than it says about the existence of mystery in human life.
1: Yeah, because people were. Actually talking about this and, and and being okay with mystery for thousands of years.
0: Yeah. And actually mystery is happening whether you're okay with it or not. <laughs> <laughs> We're just learning to name it. Rename right, so, it.
1: So let's get specific about a mystery. You tell a story in Becoming Wise about somebody named Mary Madison.
0: Oh wow, you're gonna ask me about Mary Madison? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Because I had my own. I had my own.
0: Yeah. Similar well,
1: Mary Madison see, experience. everyone
0: does have that story. I know.
1: I know. So tell us. Tell us what happened. Okay. I mean, don't dominate. Okay. Don't run out the clock. So, um, <laughs> tell us about it, because I I want to talk to you about it.
0: Okay. And I want to preface this story by saying that even though I have this radio show, which is called On Being, and people think of me as a really spiritual person, I am have a real. Serious woo-woo antenna. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and so.
1: A, a woo-woo you know I mean. antenna. See, is that? I didn't
0: have to to define it. Yeah. And so I went to this amazing Irish uh, writers retreat. You would like that.
1: I would. Um, I already like yes. it. Just the sound of it.
0: Yes. And um, so so one of the things you could do in this west coast of Ireland is I heard people at the meals talking about this woman named Mary Madison, who our host would send people to, and that she reads stones. And I listened to this stuff and rolled right. my eyes. At I breakfast. can hear your eyes okay. rolling. Rolling my right. eyes. Right. But then people kept coming back with these stories about what she told them about themselves and how incredible it was and, like, their lives were changed. So then I thought, okay, I'm in Ireland. You know, I'll do it. So this woman does not know anything about you. She doesn't know your name. And, uh... You know, I think when people have a gift, and I also mean this for healers. You know, like every every physician is not a healer, but every once in a while you meet a healer who's a chiropractor or a massage therapist, right? And so, and I think it, I think those people would be healing whatever their discipline was. So like if Mary Madison were reading tea leaves, something would have happened too. But she happens to read stones, and and but I went to see this woman who knew nothing about me, and she she knew all kinds of things about me. Um, uh, I'll just give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said to me, Oh, so you're a teacher. And I said, No, I'm not. Like, I'm thinking about the time my kids actually said to me, because I'm so bad at helping them with their homework, Mom, it's so good that you're not a teacher, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so, so you just proved she was a fraud. Uh, right. right there, so right? I said, I'm,
0: And then she, and she kept coming back to this. And I, you know, so I realized, I am a teacher, right? I'm teaching in a different, on a different platform, but so she gave me this understanding of my vocation, but also she saw my grandfather. She started the, telling the, me. The Southern the Baptist preacher grand, grand, grandfather? Yeah, the dead grandfather. She started, t- she saw like my ancestors there and she told me things about them. And she told me things about my children and she... You know, she said she saw things like I was, I was always been pretty good at raising money for the show, right? She's like, "You're you're good at raising money, aren't you?" Like, how did she know this, right? I mean, I would just gotten a big new grant, you know. So, it was uncanny. It was enriching. I took. She said when I came in, she said, "I want you to take a lot of notes because you don't you don't remember." So I took all these notes, pages and pages of notes, everything she said. And I you know, I still go back and read those notes and. My grandfather, my Southern Baptist preacher grandfather, who, what I do is so far removed from who he was, and yet I always have felt like, I have always hoped that, if, you know, if wherever he is, that he would, that he would get this, that I, that I would be asking these questions on his behalf. And, and she kind of told me that he was.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, she actually, she said, you know, I see him. I see your grandfather. He's very stern, isn't he? Hmm. She said, she said he was hard on people, wasn't he? She said he was also hard on himself. And my grandfather is a total teetotaler, right? If you ever, if you, I mean, you know, any, you know, playing cards was a sin, and drinking was a sin, and wearing shorts was a sin, and dancing was a sin, because all of this could lead to sex, basically. Somehow everything <laughs> could lead to sex. <laughs> And, and he never would touch a drop of alcohol because it was, everything was a slippery slope. And she said to me at the end of it, she said, he is raising a glass to you. And that was such a healing moment for me and I believed her.
1: Well, it, it, what's interesting about this is that then you've, you've made some connections to, medicine is actually kind of tapping into some of this mystery and, mm-hmm. and some of the, these bigger words that are hard to define whether it's compassion or Mm. um, gratitude or or some of these kinds of things that um, science is sort of catching up to this language. Would would you agree?
0: Yeah, they're circling around it. I think they are bringing these qualities of humanity that our spiritual and religious traditions have been most interested in. These have been the places we're most interested in these things. And science is now investigating them and in fact, making them much more full-bodied and kind of offering them back, not just to religion and spirituality, but to humanity.
1: Like the word forgiveness.
0: Yeah, Like, like scientists can investigate, can see the revenge instinct in us and now also is saying, yeah, that's there, but you know what, there's a forgiveness instinct too. But we have to create the conditions for forgiveness to be more possible and thinkable and likely. That's not something that, I mean, that, you know, I'd say that religion has had those kinds of thoughts, too. But this is additive. Right? This is additive.
1: The reason I, 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 I rub up, I, I, I resent, not resent, I resist the forgiveness Piece that you're just describing there is it just seems to me obvious. Well, of course, forgiveness is hardwired because that protects the tribe. You know, because if, if, if you're, you're plotting revenge or something like that, that's you, you can't. And also, last. no
0: one would ever stay married or continue to be with their children if you couldn't
1: forgive. <laughs> well, now you're just getting personal. <laughs>
0: I mean, one of the things one of these scientists said to me is, you know, I forgive... He's like, uh, you know, I was on the phone and he's like, you know, you can't see me now, but my nose is kind of halfway broken because my four-year-old, you know, <laughs> ran into me. He's like, you know, I forgive my four-year-old ten times a day without ever even thinking that I should use the word forgiveness, right? But, but what they're looking at is that, we, that we're capable of not just forgiving the people we love like that. That we actually need to take that more seriously, like how does that work? But that we can also put ourselves into a place for this to be an instinct in our public life beyond our tribes.
1: Okay, so that's different. Because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. it's, well, of course, it just preserves the tribe.
0: Yeah, no, I think this is about expanding beyond the tribe. All
1: right. There, there's some other really interesting language you use uh, about the word ritual, and you and you call rituals spiritual technology. Mm-hmm. Why spiritual and why technology?
0: Um, I think, again, ritual, not strictly but largely, is a form of intelligence about us as creatures and what we need. To make passages in life, um, it's a form of it's an ancient form of intelligence that has been largely centered in our our, tradi- our traditions, uh, that really mirrors what neuroscience is now learning about how we function and what we need, and that we do need we need bodily to mark time and honor. What we care about and find ways to bring ourselves back and also to create experiences that we share with others that become a form of shared kind of body memory. Um, yeah, spiritual technologies, I mean, virtues, rituals, uh,
1: disciplines.
0: Disciplines. Um, what is, what is, I just recently interviewed Kevin Kelly, the. Um, one of the founders of Wired magazine, a real tech guru, and you know he says tech any technologies are products of our mind. You know things that we create, um, and these tech and spiritual technologies are ways that we learn and innovate to harness you know all of these things that make us more deeply human. Um, that help us navigate the complexity of life, to help us be our best selves, to help us be in community, to help us navigate um, what goes wrong in life as well as what goes right.
1: So what would be some rituals that we would, that would connect us in this way that you're talking about?
0: Um, Well, I think, you know, even though ritual is, I actually think rituals, we need rituals, and we've lost ritual in this culture, and I think we feel the loss of it, and so we, can, we create rituals, and it, it can be like your first cup of coffee in the morning, or for me, my first cup of tea. More and more people are creating morning rituals, and, and I've gotten more faithful to this in the last few years, um, which just, like, you know, it's transformative. If you take 10 minutes in the morning to get settled and calm and feel your breath, maybe read something, maybe meditate, maybe say some prayers, you know, whatever prayer is. Um, uh, So, you know, that's the kind of ritual. What I'm really interested also in thinking about is uh, public rituals. I mean, of course, there is the Super Bowl. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But honestly, like, you know, we are so drawn to those. There's something life-giving about public rituals. And, you know, I think about how we've lost so much of this. We've lost these rites of passage that mark the entry to adulthood. Um, so family, It's fam- really only the Jewish community that has that, and I, I think it's enviable. Yeah, And okay. I think we need it. I think we need it in this society because rituals of, m- of moving to adulthood are not just about... It's not just an individual experience. It's about being surrounded by people who are accompanying you and who become accountable for you, and who you become accountable for. And I also think about how in other societies across time, you know, when, when soldiers came home from war, it wasn't just the yellow ribbon at your house. There were collective rituals of homecoming. And if you think about that, what that would also do is not just create, understand that the person coming home who had been at war had to pass from one reality back into another. But it would mean that all of us would understand that we have been at war, right? And that we are welcoming people back. You know, so that's just an example. And I I actually think as we get more intelligent, and I do have hope and faith, Mm -hmm. that we can get more intelligent, more wise. You know, that's the name of our species. Homo sapiens, the creatures who are wise. And...
1: Some t- more sapien than others, <laughs> don't you think?
0: That's part of the problem.
1: What, what? <laughs> right my, now, my judgmentalism having, is part yes, of the problem? we're having
0: trouble getting there because we <laughs> 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 a There's a, there's uh, a, I was just with a, we just had a gathering for On Being and somebody quoted a line from um, the poet William Stafford on vocation. And I'm really living this right now And hanging on to it Your job Is to find out what the world is trying to be And I'm adding a little clause to that What the world is trying to be Whether it knows it or not Because I think Even behind uh, You know So much So much dismaying behavior There's there's so much fear and pain And longing And we, we privilege our attention, we, we pay all the attention and give all the publicity to the most strident, violent, horrible acts and words. But I don't think that's what most of us are trying to be. I don't think that's what most of the world is trying to be. And I don't even think the most frightening people want to be that. I think those of us who are safer, part of our calling is to help create calming spaces to draw out the best of ourselves and the best of others. And that's how I think we become homo sapiens, yes.
1: So one of the rituals, I think, as a culture that, that we tend to gravitate toward is the ritual of storytelling. We tell hmm. family stories, we tell, you know, yeah. some of the most beautiful words ever are, tell me a story, or do yeah. you want to hear a story, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you think we're hardwired there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why? I don't know why. But I still remember uh, Robert Coles, you know, the great child psychiatrist, who wrote the spiritual life of children, the political lives of children, and you know, I remember him saying, in this, his growly bear voice, you know, "We are the storytelling creatures." And why is that so know, important, we're, though? We're relearning that in medicine, you know, that that matters. That you know somebody's story before you treat them. That if you don't know their story, you're you're not. You know, you may be able to. Treat symptoms, but you—you like that the healing is going to come from that fullness of them.
1: I mean, you told your kids stories, I assume, right? When they were going, oh yeah, read them stories. But you know
0: what's sad about us is that we understand we've turned it into a childhood thing, right? Mm. Actually, every one of us in here also loves a story and needs stories. We, I—but why? I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't have an answer for that but somehow uh, I think we need stories like we need food, you know mm-hmm. we, without them we, we wither we die inside and, and a beautiful thing right now and actually you know podcasting is one of the ways we are uh, I think first of all just rediscovering how much we love this and you discover, you discover how, how much you love it and then, and then you understand that you needed it all along I think okay. poetry is the same. Okay. We're rediscovering poetry.
1: Um, you you have said that it's just really easy to be a cynic these days, and that uh, you say it's easy because you're never proven wrong, and it doesn't move to solve anything.
0: Yeah, there's a laziness about being
1: cynical. They're really boring to be around. So, sorry. I, I'm serious. <laughs> there's
0: that too. Because yes.
1: because they, they know they already know you don't.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So what do you think about skepticism?
0: Well, I believe in good questions, so I think, so I think you know that one way of being skeptical is questioning. Hmm. Um. I uh, there's a wonderful book that was written a number of years ago on doubt. <laughs> A history of doubt, and one of the things that she pointed out is that the original cynics and skeptics and Epicureans, this language we use, which in our time is very kind of effete and removed, these were originally graceful life philosophies. Um,
1: You're okay with doubt, aren't you? Oh, Yeah. So your podcast, one of the things that impresses me about the podcast is you have this diversity of voices, experience, ages, uh, faiths, worldviews, everything. Um, do, you, uh, do you have a sense that yeah, but they all have something in common. Do you have a sense of that with all of this diversity that you bring to your show?
0: I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not interested in like it, well, I am not animi- animated by what we all have in common uh, so is
1: that just a dumb question no is that it's kind not of what're dumb- is that where we 're going <laughs> no is that no, really what you 're saying no.
0: <laughs> it's not a dumb question it's a way it''s a it's a, it's a kind of it 's an instinct that we have to look for what's what we have in common and and uh, and I think it often leads to superficiality because what makes us different from each other is actually what's really fascinating, you know, hard, and also really fascinating, and I, be- I think our particularity is our gift to the world.
1: Hold um, well, did you I just say like our to, particularity is our gift to the world, what, is that what you just yeah, said? Yeah,
0: what, what each of us has to offer to the world is in the particulars of who we are and our story and its quirks and our strangeness. I love it,
1: that's, that's brilliant.
0: There's a place for commonality that's not my passion. I like to go deep into the stories and experience and the knowledge that people have accumulated in their bodies and in their minds and through their lives and what their questions are as well as their answers. And what is so exciting to me is that as you do that consistently, down here in the depths where everybody's so different, you start to hear these echoes. And that is the realm of mystery And, you know, I still wouldn't call it commonality, but I would call it where we we start realizing we're talking about the same things, but we're using different words, and it has different lived virtues attached. And I think that when we start to put together that kind of ecosystem then maybe we start to get at the complexity and, and, the, and the vastness of whatever that truth is that we're pointing at together. Discerning together.
1: Okay. Yeah, discerning. That, there's another beautiful word. Yeah, that,
0: that's a great word.
1: Problematic. Yeah. <laughs> On, of all the years you've been doing this podcast, have anybody, has anybody... They've just been a total jerk that you can... <laughs> Who, who can come on? We want to know.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't tell you. If I had an answer. Um, uh, I ha- I do have the privilege of not being. You know, we made a decision in the early days of because it's a public radio show too, right? And it, for a long, t- it was only a few years that it's been also a podcast. And in the early days, you know, we were under a lot of pressure to be more newsy, which is to sound more like everything else, and. Um, and we gradually were able to resist that and say, you know, we're, we're not going to be news hooked. We're not going to follow the news cycle, but we're going to be news relevant. And we're going to pay attention to the questions that are still left over three months after the news cycle has moved on, but that we didn't even begin, to, we didn't finish dwelling with. And maybe we're just now starting to work with this. Um, what was your question?
1: Well, I want to know. I just—it totally was a nice—it do- was a thought. nice dodge from who were the jerks. Oh yeah, who were the jerks?
0: So, so, but, so I. No, I, ha-
1: I saw what you did, Krista. <laughs> I'm to this, this. This is what
0: politicians do. So I don't have to—I don't have to interview the jerks basically because I'm not bound to what happened 20 minutes ago, and we have to cover that, and I have to get whoever is the loudest voice. Okay. So I have had people who've underwhelmed me. But I couldn't possibly think of their names right now.
1: Would tonight be one of those times? <laughs> but No. Okay, okay, but all right, so let me ask who is there somebody that you just wish, you know what? I could spend a month of our podcast talking to this person.
0: Oh, I feel that so often. I feel that so often. And I'm, you know, one thing we're also really committed to is um, I, I, I have interviewed at this point my fair share of, I don't know, celebrities and, mm-hmm. you know, the Dalai Lama, people like that. But we, we work, God, so there's also, named. sorry, okay, yeah, but there's, but, there, but there's also, there's a lot of pressure to interview famous people all the time. And if you interview a famous person, if you interview celebrities, you know, your, your, your ratings go skyrocket on iTunes... for a little while. Um, But we work really hard to find... uh, You know, we all know this in the world. There are all these people who are below that radar of fame. A lot of them because they're too busy doing the important work. And they're in every one of our disciplines. You know, whatever your discipline is, there are these giants in every discipline who have been teachers to generations of practitioners. And most of those people are not known outside their discipline. So I love getting those people. And I mean, just this last few days, I was with, for example, um, you know, John Paul Lederach, who's a, um, a a peacemaker. He's just a giant, and you know, in the field of people who study conflict resolution. Although he doesn't do conflict resolution anymore, he does conflict transformation. He won't take on a project unless people are willing. To commit at least ten years, which is un-American.
1: Right? He's not gonna make America okay. great again.
0: And <laughs> he is. He 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 helped bring about peace in Northern Ireland over three generations. He helped bring about this peace in Colombia over thirty years. Um so again like to introduce and he's been on the show and I just interviewed him again together with America Ferreira the actress mm-hmm. who's on the front lines of a lot of these um, you know these hard places but these places that are opening up in our culture right now around women around immigration around race and so, so, we're going to be putting that on the air sometime in the next couple of months. Stay tuned. It was electrifying. And so, to bring like this person who, who in fact, who turns out to be famous and is using her fame um, to be a social force and healer, and then this giant who would never be known unless you looked for him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, you know, somebody like both of them, I mean, yeah, I, so people are so, we are so fascinating we humans, and if you spend enough time and really get curious, really get, genuinely get curious, I, I don't know, you, there's all so, you know, you could spend months with any of us and be fascinated.
1: So becoming wise doesn't mean we're trying to save the world. Is that true?
0: Um, yeah, I think save the world is, is problematic. I think um, I think the way my I was taught to save the world, and uh, a lot of people in the 20th century taught to save the world, was very. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problems in what that meant, which was that I'm saved and you need saving.
1: I have the Messiah complex. Yeah. and working, we, right. you know,
0: in the name in with very good intentions, in the name of saving the world. Uh, We identified people by their problems that needed fixing. Uh, So, yeah, I don't think... I don't think being coming wise necessarily has anything to do with saving the world. I do love the Jewish language of repairing the world.
1: Living better in the world also? Is that part of wisdom?
0: Yeah, I think wisdom... So, you know, our spiritual traditions... Have been the places in our midst that have asked these questions about what it means to be human, you know, how we want to live, how to love, what is a worthy life, what is a worthy death. I think that they also have always been connected to the to the question of who we are to each other. But until this point in human history, you could take that question or leave it. It it could just be about your tribe It could just be about your family It could just be about your country Now In the 21st century And with our technologies That actually give us the power For the first time In history To think and act as a species The question of Who we are what What it means to be human And who we are to each other These things are inextricable And I think wisdom is about holding those quest- questions together. It's about many things, but it's, you know, it's as much about that as it's about what you know.
1: Hmm. So let's talk about the word love.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and you've got this, you say, what is love? Answer the question through the story of your life. Yeah. That just sounds like such a cop-out. Just tell, just tell me what it is, would you?
0: If you answer the question through the story of your life, you will know. You oh, will know what it wait is. Way to
1: zen out on me here. <laughs> this.
0: The reason I did that, so, so my project started with an oral history project I did for a bunch of Benedictines who were incredible. And they would take big theological questions like what is God or what is prayer and they'd have a really diverse group of people and they'd say, answer the question through the story of your life. And it is an amazing question and I have to say, you know, they would have five days and you, you didn't just have to do it in three minutes. You, know, you, would, you might spend the whole first day or half a day just getting through everybody. And I want to say the day after election 2016, if we could have sat around with somebody who voted differently and asked, why did you vote for Hillary Clinton? Or why did you vote for Donald Trump? Answer the question through the story of your life. We could be in the middle of a really meaningful catharsis. I feel that we are stumbling into this catharsis anyway, but it's taking us a long time.
1: We could have been a little more intentional about it, couldn't we?
0: We could have been talking about the real things. We could have been talking about our pain and our fear, which are shared, and what we need to repair, and how we all love our children. And what are the implications of that? And if I, if I honor and see that you love your children as much as I love my children, how do I have to live differently? That's what we would get into.
1: So we've got some, we've got some writers in the audience. There are going to be some writers who watch this. you have some advice for them, writing advice? You're a good writer.
0: Oh. Thank you very much. Writing is so hard.
1: Don't say that. <laughs> that's, not, that's not helpful.
0: <laughs> Keep going. Writing is like it's like giving birth, right? And in every sense and at some point in finishing a book it's like you're 10 months pregnant for a year and it's awful. It's excruciating. And then the book is published and you hold it in your hands and you forget all the pain and you say, when do I write my next book? Um, but I mean, every time, I'm trying to write a new book now.
1: This is on the civil conversations? Well, it's,
0: it's kind of connected all the, its called it, well, the, let's see if it'll be, I don't know if it'll be named this, but it's the, the I'm thinking about Letters to a Young Citizen. So after Rilke, who wrote Letters to a Young Poet. Um, but it's so many... I mean, writing is like life, too. Like I, it, When I'm writing, there are always you know multiple s- s- points along the way where I get into a very black place and I know for sure that I will not be able to finish this. And what was I thinking? And the only good thing about getting older... And like having that experience enough is that when I when I have those moments now they still feel terrible and despairing. But like I'm like oh oh okay this always happens right. So this is one of the this is one of the steps along yeah. the way right. Well, yeah, do you again. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually that's why we need intergenerational friendship, um, especially right now where the new generations, the young people among us, like this is a hard, hard. You know, it's it's, it's exhilarating and hard and 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 uh, and when you're young you don't you don't know it's when you fall into those those hard places those abysses we we need to accompany you and be there to you know to like just be there with you and say yeah this this is not an end point this is one of the places you always come when you're walking in the right direction when you're doing something important and you know right so writing in that way is just like a microcosm of life
1: let, so right now you're thinking letters to a young citizen. You're you're just it's a it sounds like I, it's a would, letter of, a letter of encouragement a, a book of encouragement perhaps.
0: Yeah, a it's a challenge. What, uh, it's it's Rilke was writing hun, at the beginning of the last century. Uh,
1: but he was writing in in response to letters that he was receiving from a young poet. Yes,
0: from a young poet. But he was writing about life, and he Mm -hmm. was writing about inhabiting the world, and he was writing in a world that was just about to completely fall apart.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, He was part of a Central Europe that ceased to exist. Uh, And it's really helpful in a strange way to recall that 2017, 2018 has nothing on 1917, 1918 in terms of how how bad it was in terms of all the you know war, genocide, refugee crisis. Um, But he's also right There's stuff he writes about women and about gender and about you know about how he's you know 1903 he's writing that for a while women are going to go through a phase where they act more like men to be taken seriously but one day we're going to get to a, to a diff- whole different place where we can see the feminine human being so I mean there's a lot that's prescient in it about a lot of things and, and I think it takes this long view of time and I do feel that a long view of time uh, which again is very un-American, is um, is one of the ways we can kind of uh, uh, I don't want to say arm ourselves, <laughs> equip ourselves to you know to realize that the challenges before us are intimate and civilizational all at once, and. Uh, John Paul Lederach, this peacemaker this week, he talked about the 200-year window. I'm so excited to share this with you, I've never heard this before. The 200-year window, which is is like how true cultural shift happens. It's this simple. Think about when you were, the earliest memory you have of the oldest person you knew, which is gonna be like an 80, 90-year span. And then right now, the youngest person you know, and how long they are going to live. So America Ferrera is seven months pregnant, okay, so, and, and, and they say that people being born now are gonna live 100 years, God help them, <laughs> right? So, so that's, you know, and if you think about race and about civil rights and all the stuff that's going on with women now, and how in some ways it's just like, you know, we thought everything was worked out in 1972, and then there's this way we've been living, all of us, complicit. It takes time. Change takes time. And to think about, though, that we, in fact, in some ways, touch you know, both ends of that change, where we came from, where we're going. Um, this is one of our tools that we have to navigate this moment and stay calm and you know, see the darkness and walk towards the light.
1: Krista Tippett, thank you very much. (laughs) You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV,
0: visit us online at uctv.tv.